Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, just for this morning, this morning of worship where we get to sing songs to praise you. We ask you now uh, just for your grace and mercy that you will humble my heart as I speak the truth, as I speak your word. May you be with our hearts now. May you soften our hearts. May you open our eyes to the beauty of your word and your gospel. And may you you just use me as your servant to serve your people now. Be be with us this morning. Lord, we praise you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, our passage this morning has sort of caused me to reflect really on some of our families here at Gateway. just thinking about you guys as I've, as I've read through this passage, it really reminded me of Gateway Bible Church. Um, in fact, it's actually reminded me of some of the families that have recently departed. So we've had the, the Demands and also the Costellos who have, less, who have left us uh, really the past month or so. Um, both families have served faithfully here in our church, uh, the community, and also they would serve their families well. Um, they disciple people. Uh, they would meet uh, in the mornings for, for men's ministry, and also they would lead uh, women's Bible studies as well. Um, they were people, really, who loved the church. Uh, they were good witnesses uh, to Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ and his gospel. And so, again, as I read Paul's letter, I'm, I'm confident that Paul had families like the Demands, like the Casellos, in mind as he was writing to the church in Thessalonica, Okay. Now, we know from the very beginning how much Paul sort of adored this church. I mean, from the very beginning, you could see, you could sense such a different tone. It's very pastoral. I mean, if you you compare, like, for example, 1 and 2 Corinthians, where he's sort of rebuking the church but also loving them, this this book here, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, again, very tender, very pastoral. And so, in the same way, we as elders, again, think highly of Gateway. And we we always talk, Rod and I, we meet, and when the elders meet, we always really talk about, really, your faithfulness in ministry. And you guys could see here, we have have a ton of teachers who teach Sunday school. Uh, We have people who serve donuts. We have people who set up in the morning. We have ushers. And throughout the week, we have people who are constantly opening up their homes and discipling our people. So again, we talk about really our love for, for the people here at Gateway and of course the faithfulness here uh, within the church. Therefore, as we come to our passage today, I want us to think really about the faithful people in the context of the church who exercise really love and witness while living sort of that ordinary life. Okay, so re- we're living here in the barrier in Castro Valley and really life is very, very ordinary, so to speak. And so people are serving faithfully, quietly here. And so I want that to be sort of on your mind as we go through this passage, because it's been on my mind all week. So before we jump in, right in, let's look at chapter four as a whole, because I think it'll help us understand 
where we're heading. So again, you could just kind of briefly glance through chapter 4, and if you were to just look quickly at the layout, it would be something like this. Rod talked about this last week, um, verses uh, 1 through 8. It's really a life-pursuing holiness. And Rod talked about our sanctification and the importance of sanctification, the importance of holiness, the importance of obeying God, okay? And then as we come into our text, verses 9 through 12, I would call it a life walking with love, sort of a life walking with love. Again, last week, a life pursuing holiness, a life walking with love this week. And then next week, I would sort of categorize it as a life anticipating sort of the end, a life with the end in mind. And of course, as I just mentioned, Daryl Young will close us out with chapter four next week. Ultimately, stepping back, this summarizes the Christian life that pleases God, right? We're walking in holiness, we're walking in love, and we're, we're walking thinking about the end, okay? Because that's all that matters right now in the Christian life is when God takes us away and we take our step into eternity. And so that's sort of the overview of chapter four. So what we find this morning really is an encouragement to love. Now, keep this in mind. It follows the exhortation to holiness, okay? So again, Rod talked about sort of this exhortation to holiness, to holy living, but then we come to our text and it sort of connects into an encouragement to love. Now, uh, as we think about our text, you see this sort of connection, right, um, to obey and to be holy for the sake of pleasing God. And so God gives believers the Holy Spirit to say no to sin and to obey and to live a life of what we talked about, progressive sanctification, right, that process of being made holy. And that's what we're walking through. And so, as I just mentioned, I think there's a connection, okay, to the believer's holiness and the way they should love the church. Let me say that again. I believe there is a connection to a believer's holiness and the way they love the church. Because if we strive by the working power of the Holy Spirit to be free from the bondage of sin, then our love for each other will be based on more so pure motives without hinting, without the hinting of any sexual undertones. Here's what I mean, okay? In order to love people sort of just purely, we need to, as a church to be walking in holiness, right? In order to love our church family. And so there's, there's no, I know living in a sexualized culture, it brings all these sexual undertones into play. But, but if we're saying that Christ is better than whatever the world has to offer, and if we're walking in our sanctification, then we are able to love others freely, both men and women, as brothers and sisters in Christ. But if I think, if, if our hearts are filled with lust, really we're incapable to love with pure motives. And that's how I see the connection here. So in, uh, nevertheless, in thinking through the layout of, of chapter four, Paul walks us through, first, the call to purity, then a call to love and to be a good neighborly witness. So, Here's my aim this morning. The church is called to love one another and be a good witness for Jesus Christ. The church is called to love one another 
and be a good witness for Jesus Christ. What we find in our text are really three calls to action as we prepare to go through our text this morning, which takes us to our first point. It's what I call a church called to love others. A church called to love others. And what I found is really a word of encouragement in verses 9 and 10. The first encouragement, and it's really simple, is this is Paul. Right? He's, here's what he's saying. Look, church, continue doing what you are doing. Continue doing what you are doing. It's an encouragement to love the church, an encouragement to love the church. Verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Now, we know from last week that Paul is addressing both brothers and sisters within the church. Rod alluded to that phrase in verse 1, brothers, right, where it's a phrase that includes both men and women. Therefore, we know Paul is addressing all believers in the church. In fact, the phrase here um, can be translated, now concerning this love or affection for fellow believers that you have, Thessalonica. Again, it can be translated, now concerning this love or affection for fellow believers. Right? This brotherly love. It's where we get that word in the Greek, Philadelphia. And so here's the encouragement. The church in Thessalonica had no problems loving each other. In fact, Paul is both affirming and encouraging their love for each other. And that's huge. Can you imagine getting a letter? And Paul is both affirming, hey, you know, I heard about your love. And I'm just affirming, continue doing what you're doing. I'm so encouraged by your love. And, and again, just as a reminder from the very beginning of this book and throughout the first three chapters, we understand the tone, the pastoral heart of Paul's letter and how loving and faithful the church was at the time. Let me read to you uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. This is Paul. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love in steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you fast forward to chapter 3, verse 6, if you remember, this is Timothy's report of the church. Verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and what? And love. And reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Now, Again, this is the affirming report and their encouragement that their love is being spread, that love is rampant within the church. And so we go back to our text, and Paul, again, encourages to love. A church, the church in, in, Thess in Thessalonica is doing what it's supposed to be doing, really loving each other. However, it's, this is not just an encouragement to love, okay? It's not just, just love each other. There's something that's driving this type of love, and it flows into our second encouragement you find in this verse. And it's really, and it's an encouragement to remember the word. And it's an encouragement to remember the word. Look at the, the second half of verse 9. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Again, going back to chapter 1, we realize Paul kind of uses the same language, that they already know the word of God. And that's huge. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of our Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
And in back in chapter 4, in verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a church that loves the people, but also really loves the word of God. And they're remembering what, what, what was taught to them. And so here's the reason, again, for their love is they were taught by God. In other words, they had sound doctrine. They knew the word of God. They knew the commands of the Bible. And so the phrase taught by God is so unique. Commentators, they, they had trouble finding what this word really meant, right? Because this word in the Greek is not found in anywhere in the Bible. And so one writer put it this way. Um, he's saying Paul sort of invented this word. He said they were God-taught. That's the word. They were God-taught. So in the original, it says they were God-taught. And you will not find this phrase anywhere. Paul just made up this word. And he only made up this word for the church in Thessalonica. So he's saying, look, Thessalonians, you were God-taught. Paul saw the evidence of God at work in their lives by their love for one another. And the evidence came from the law that they were taught by virtue of the Old Testament. Let me read to you Isaiah 54, 13, and it's up here. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Okay? So they were taught the word. They were God-taught. Now, I want us to realize something. It wasn't just about reading the law and then following it. Okay? Uh, but really, it's about the Holy Spirit working the law of God into their hearts. Remember, they were a church under the new covenant found in Jesus Christ. They were driven by the gospel to love each other. And so they were, they were taught the law, but the law was supposedly written on their hearts. Let me read for you Jeremiah 31, 33, and it's up here. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. What does it say? It says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Paul is essentially saying this. Look, Thessalonians, I see the evidence of love in your life, and that love can only be taught by God. The promises of God in the Old Testament are in your hearts now, by virtue of the new covenant. And so throughout this letter, Paul reminds them that God is at work in their lives, that God, God's word is on their hearts. And again, what an encouragement from Paul. And so the, the question is for us this morning, is the word of God in our hearts? Is it on our hearts? Are we praying? Are we memorizing scripture? Not for the sake of, of just doing, but for the sake of loving other people. Not only do we find an encouragement to love and to remember the word, we find really an encouragement to grow in love, an encouragement to grow in love. Again, this is another great encouragement from Paul. I want us to recognize how far the love of the church reached because it was not only within the church, okay? Look what it says. But all the brothers throughout where? Macedonia. And that, that's a huge place. So the only Macedonian churches recorded in Acts at the time were the churches in Philippi and the churches in Berea. So studies mentioned that there were many more churches. Therefore, when news got back to Paul and Silas and others, 
that the churches throughout Macedonia were, were, were recipients of God's love, I mean, basically they were saying, wow, I mean, you're, the, the, the church is filled with love, not only within the church, but also the surrounding churches throughout Macedonia. But Paul's encouragement also comes with an exhortation. Look at the second part of, of 10, verse 10. Here's the exhortation. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. It's a similar command we found in verse 1. Look at verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. That's the exhortation. Here's what this means. Look, loving others is not a checklist, like a checkoff on the to-do list, okay? I mean, we don't say to ourselves, well, you know, I love my spouse, I love my children, I love my friend today. It's time to move on, okay? It's not a checklist. Loving others is ongoing. Loving others is ongoing, And so we should be making it a priority to love and care for one another because that's what the gospel does. If the the gospel is on our hearts and it's really fueling our ways to live, right, it ties people together and enables people to love one another more and more. And not just people who look like you and not just people who act like you, but all kinds of people within the church but also outside the church. The more we grow together as a church, the more we grow in love and in deep affection for one another. Now, let me tell you something. We're a young church. We're about gonna be eight years old, so it takes time to grow together and to love one another. So be patient. Be patient. And then we should take Paul's words really seriously. Let us grow in love. Now, concerning us, Gateway, You know, our prayer as elders and as leaders every day is that the word really, again, is written on your hearts in order that you may love. Our prayer is that the life of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection compel you to love. And so when we see Jesus' life unfold before our very eyes, especially when we return back to the book of Mark, uh, when we return to the book of Mark in September and we see his journey to the cross, our response really should be, I want to be like Jesus Christ. I want to follow his example. I want that gospel act of love because it's a special time when we return back to the book of Mark because Jesus is just journeying his way to the cross. And some of you who are doing the McShane reading plan, you're probably reading through the book of Mark right now. And so the, the Thessalonians' love for one another was deeply rooted in their relationship with God. The new covenant was a deep, penetrating love for them to imitate. Therefore, the challenge for all of us this morning as we read through this love part is that we need to come to grips really with the gospel. Meaning, as you're, re- and I just read through the book of Mark again, I mean, it, you, have to, you, you can't avoid Christ's love for the people. I mean, do you see his compassion or do you remember his compassion toward the sick, the lame, the blind? Do you see his patience towards all the crowds? Do you see him going to all the nations? Do you see his love towards his disciples? 
I mean, his stubborn disciples. From chapter 8, you're like, I can't believe they're saying this. I can't believe they're doing this. I mean, but that's, that's genuine love from Jesus Christ. He's loving his disciples. I mean, do you see the genuine love as he was beaten, as he was shamed, as he was spat on, as he was mocked? In John 13, 1, before the Passion Week, we find um, Christ really just, he's about to wash his disciples' feet, but again, this is in preparation for the, for the Passion Week. Let me read to you verse one. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to when? To the very end. Jesus, on his way to the cross, not only was going to be betrayed and left abandoned, ultimately killed for our sins, yet he loved his disciples to the very end, to the very end when he said, it is finished. This is the same gospel that drove the Thessalonians to love each other. A couple years ago, I was reading the Gospel Primer. It's a small book by Milton Vincent. It's called The Gospel Primer for Christians. And so I, I came across this, um, this sort of passage here uh, in his book, and I have it up here on the board. And I think sometimes we need to read books like this in order for, to preach the gospel to ourselves. Let me read it for us. He says this, when my mind is fixed on the gospel, when my mind is fixed on the gospel, I have ample stimulation to show God's love to each other, to other people. For I am always willing to show love to others when I'm freshly mindful of the love that God has shown to me. Also, the gospel gives me the wherewithal to give forgiving grace to those who have wronged me. For it reminds me daily of the forgiving grace that God is showing me. Doing good and showing love to those who have wronged me is always the opposite of what my sinful flesh wants me to do. Nonetheless, when I remind myself of my sins against God and of his forgiving and generous grace towards me, I give the gospel an opportunity to reshape my perspective and to put me in a frame of mind wherein I actually desire to give this same grace to those who have wronged me. Church, are you driven by the gospel? Do you desire to share that same love that Christ showed you on the cross? Next, we're, we're not only called to love, but we're actually called to work diligently. We're, we're a church called to work diligently. <clears throat> a word to aspire. We're in verse 11. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, before we jump into verse 11, it's safe to take a brief detour as to what could be actually going on in the background and why Paul is actually saying this to us. So it doesn't tell us the exact reason as to why Paul addresses this particular situation, okay? But Paul, just like all his letters, he just doesn't address things for the sake of nothing, okay? It's safe to assume that there had to be some information that Paul received in writing this letter. That's why he writes now concerning. Okay? Now, let's stick through the context here. Remember, Paul is constantly reminding the Thessalonian church to live in light of his return. I mean, that's the theme that we've come through, that we come on in terms of the first Thessalonians, living in light of his return. So if we go to chapter 1, verse 10, 
This is what it says. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then if you fast forward to chapter 5, verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And here, I'm, I'm, I'm getting somewhere here. So therefore, it could be that some people in the church, during this time, they were battling what we call as idleness in their own lives, especially when it comes to work. In other words, Maybe some were, were being a poor testimony or witness in having the thought of, well, you know, Jesus is going to return soon. Why work? I mean, that's the thought. You know, a couple of years ago, I was part of a, a corporate layoff, and I, I really think they told us way ahead of time. They told us like six months in advance that we're going to be laid off. They're going to close our department. And so can you imagine what it did to the, to the morale, to the productivity in that department? I mean, people were like, why work? The end is near, you know? And so we had the, the, all the bosses had to keep motivating their people that work needs to be done. But the people had in their minds, hey, the end is near. Why work? And so that's the same thinking here. Hey, why do we have to work? The end is near. And so Paul is addressing this. So here comes the exhortation, going back to our text. This is what he says. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and, what does it say? The word to aspire. Now, what does this mean? Well, R.C. Sproul is helpful in his commentary on this word. He says that this word, at the same time, aspire, usually indicates an attempt to garner civic recognition through outward displays of generosity by the wealthy. Let me say that again. He says this word aspire usually indicates an attempt to garner civic recognition through outward displays of generosity by the wealthy. In other words, Paul is using this word aspire or, or in being ambitious, right, that determination to succeed. He's using this, this really weird word, okay? But here's the reason why he uses this word. He, he, Paul sort of turns this word upside down. And here's what I mean. Look at the commands that follow. He doesn't say, be ambitious for the sake of success, okay? He says, be ambitious, aspire to what? To live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands. It's the opposite of what the wealthy like to do in gaining recognition for their ambition. Okay? That's what the wealthy like to do. And so Paul's kind of using that same word. Right? And let me just note here, it's, it's not a sin to be wealthy, but if your goal is only success, in the eyes of the world, to be ambitious, to have this worldly ambition, if that's your only goal, as Christians, then you have it all wrong. And so we need people, specifically Christians, to be ambitious to glorify him. And so Paul is using this word, but he's flipping it, okay? He's saying, look, aspire but don't aspire to be rich and wealthy and to give all your wealth so people could see and to gather all this attention. He's saying, make it your ambition to not be ambitious like the world. But to first, again, I'm just following the flow of this text, first, aspire to live quietly. Aspire to live quietly. Now, there are varying opinions on what this word actually means, 
whether the Thessalonians are to avoid public controversy or how Paul is specifically addressing those who are burdening others. I mean, those observations would certainly work, but I think I was, I was helped here by, by a commentary, and he put it this way. He said, the word translated refers more to a state of being than to an absence of words. Let me say it again. The, the, the word translated, quiet, refers more to a state of being more than an absence of words. Now, here's how Paul flips the term upside down. He's saying, aspire to work, but work with a quiet confidence in God. Work with a quiet confidence in God. In other words, your confidence, especially in your personal life and in work, is placed in God. Meaning, you're reflecting the love of Jesus Christ in your personal lives by being that type of person where nothing sort of rattles you. So if you, you get a, a job notice and you're gonna be laid off, you're saying, okay, hey, this is a sad time, but I know God is sovereign. I know he is in control. And so you have this, this quiet confidence, right? Nothing shakes you, whether it's sickness, whether it's relational tension, or even death will not shake you. And here's why. Because you understand that our sovereign God works through all things together for his good, for those called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. Look, and that's not fluffy mentality. That's not fluffy mentality. The Apostle Paul knew what a quiet confidence looked like in the face of danger. He knew what quiet confidence looked like. I mean, if you recall, in Corinthians, he talked about his own sufferings, and I have it here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, this is his own sufferings, okay? This is what Paul had to deal with every single day. Let me read it for you, starting at verse 24. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A, a night and a, a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Yet, Yet, in spite of all that, Paul is able to say, I am neither that, that death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul could exhort the church in Thessalonica to have a quiet confidence in God because he was sure he lived through it, that nothing would rattle him. And he had a testimony to speak for itself. So Paul is saying, look, have a quiet confidence, dear church, because I had to have a quiet confidence as I experienced all these things. So church, this is a reminder that our confidence is not in the circumstances that surround us, but our confidence is in God. Yes, we will go through things together. There will be sadness. There will be pain. But our confidence is always in God. Death for the Christian is not resting in peace, 
But death for the Christian is really is resting in Christ. And so may we have this same quiet confidence in God. Second, we must aspire to mind our own affairs, to mind our own affairs. Living the quiet life and having the utmost confidence in God enables one to not be lazy, but also to not meddle in the affairs of others. And so the natural result of a quiet confidence is really minding your own business because you have no time to be in other people's affairs because you're busy working. And so Paul was clearly addressing those who had probably quit their jobs, as I just mentioned, and had the time to be in other people's business. He was addressing the idleness in their lives. And so Paul speaks to this in 2 Thessalonians, and I have it up here. He speaks to this again in, in 2 Thessalonians verse, chapter 3, verse 6 and following. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor worked day, night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Okay, Paul is giving them an example of what you know not being busy is. For when we were with you, we would give you the command: if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Therefore, the aim of the church is not to be idle in this life given by God, right? Because with idleness comes laziness, with laziness, with laziness comes temptation to sin. I don't have all these verses, there's lots of verses in Proverbs that talk about the lazy sluggard. And so it's a church the church is called to be busy, but not to be idle, but to continue to work. In other words, living a life of holiness and love that is driven by the gospel gives you that aim, really, to please God. And, and Paul sort of exhorts Timothy as well. In 2 Timothy 2, he talks about that. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The aim was to please God and to work. Lastly, we find that term work at the end of verse 11. We must aspire to work with our hands. We must aspire to work with our hands. Okay, now, let me be clear here. Work is not a curse, okay? Some people think that the reason why we work is because of the fall. However, if we read what happened before the curse, before Adam and Eve committed their first sin, we find that God instructed man to work before the fall. Let me read to you Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to what? To work it and keep it. God commanded Adam to work before the fall. So again, work is not a curse, dear friends. I'm sorry. I might be breaking hearts here, okay? We were called to work before sin ever came into the world. Therefore, in thinking through this command of work, Paul is instructing the church to work 
which is the complete opposite of idleness. And so culturally speaking, again, this is what Paul does. Paul is continuing to flip the cultural norm here because here's why. In Greek culture, look, Greek culture sort of looked down upon manual labor or working with your hands. They saw manual labor as fit for slaves. But as Christians, Paul is saying this. No, 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 Thessalonians. It doesn't matter what you're doing, but you're called to work, whether it's manual labor, whether it's doing other things. Because you know why? Your hope, your confidence is in God. Your focus is really on what you need to do. It's not to be lazy. You're called to work. Your job is to work. And so point two really is a threefold command. Live quietly, mind your own business, and work. Now, the question is why? And that, that takes us to our last point this morning. We are a church called to live properly. Our church called to live properly in verse 12, a word to witness, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The reason why Paul is urging the church to love and work diligently is so that the church could be a good witness to the world. The word outsiders refers to unbelievers. Therefore, we are called to work properly as there are those who are looking from the outside in, so to speak. And so we talk about this so often, the church reflects Jesus Christ in the world. The church is the light of the world. It's a city on the hill, right? Jesus refers to this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. In other words, the outsiders are going to see the church's love and the way they walk in the light of a sinful and sexualized culture. The church, the, the, the world is watching the church. As one commentary puts it, we are to live externally what Jesus has done for us internally. Our testimony in living quietly and minding our own business and working hard is a reflection that our focus is not on ourselves, but on God. Let me say that again. Our testimony in living quietly, minding our own business, and working hard is a reflection that our focus is not on ourselves, but on God. And so what, this is what Paul is saying. He says, look, don't live self-focused lives. Live for God. Love your brothers and sisters and be a good witness to the world that watches you. True joy comes from living for God and being dependent on no one but God. There are some self-focused people who are very miserable people in the world, right? Because they can never justify themselves. They can never, um, they can never be too ambitious enough. They're always living for the approval of others, right? They're, they're living and working for themselves and others' approval in order to be successful in the world. But dear friends, let me warn you is that that will die down. You will get tired of proving to people how successful you are, how ambitious you are. And so there's a big difference with Christians and the world, okay? We live and work not to be justified. We live and work because we're already justified in Christ. Our approval is set. Jesus lived and died for us in order that we may live and work for him. Therefore, our focus is not on ourselves, but serving God. And a lot of you do that here. 
I'm not just talking down to you. I'm encouraging you because I see it. Sunday after Sunday, week after week, a lot of you are serving the church sacrificially. A lot of you do not need credit. A lot of you do not want credit. But you are serving God. And the world will see this. The world will notice our witness for Christ and our dependence on him and not anything else. Therefore, God, Paul calls the church first to live and love God more and more, to live and love our brothers and sisters more and more, to live and be a witness to Christ for unbelievers to see. Very simple commands, but hard nonetheless. Here's what I mean. I'll conclude here. You know, I, I believe all of us can relate to sort of these instructions but it's hard to, to do these simple things even now, especially in the church. And here's what I mean. We live in a culture where we're always looking sort of to the next best thing, okay? I'm not sure if it's, we blame social media, we just blame our culture right now, but we're always looking to that new job or the new home or even the new church. It's all very ambitious stuff. And there's nothing wrong with doing these things. But if you continually pursue the next best thing over living quietly, minding your own affairs, and working with your hands, then we all need to evaluate our own lives in light of what Paul is saying. You know, close to 10 years ago now, two books changed my view on living the Christian life and serving God. And they changed my view for the good. One was Crazy Love by Francis Chan. It's a red book. And the other was Radical by David Platt. That's an orange book. And I think we might have some copies back there. And again, they were two great books, especially for the church in our day. And really, those books uh, challenged the, the Christian church on how, how American Christianity has evolved the past 50 years, right? And so it was a challenge to be radical in light of living in a self-focused society. And so throughout the book, I was challenged I was humbled to start living for Jesus and not myself. All the right thing that, that Paul addresses in, in being God-focused rather than being self-focused. However, there is a danger because of misconceptions some people might have in reading a book about living a radical life. Kevin DeYoung, he wrote a book review on this, and he gracefully cautioned people. Now, Kevin DeYoung, he's another pastor and author, he, he wrote a review, and him and David Platt, they speak at conferences together, and so I believe they're friends. But he wrote a book on Radical by David Platt. And here's what he says. Here's what he says. Quote, I worry that some young Christians reading David's book might walk away wondering if a life spent working as a loan officer, tithing to their church, praying for their kids, learning to love Christ more, and serving in the Sunday school could possibly be pleasing to God. In other words, is a quiet life radical enough for us Christians today? Look, don't get me wrong. This book has changed many lives, including myself. But we need to understand that being radical is not just about moving to another country and doing missions or serving the marginalized. You can be radical here in Castro Valley serving your neighbor, and being a good witness. Let me be clear. If, if God calls you to sell everything you have, move across the world to do missions for the sake of the gospel, then we as a church will support and send you with joy. 
I mean, we've always said it. We want to be ascending church. The signs of a healthy church is ascending church. And I'm so I'm thankful that Gateway is sending our family to Europe. I mean, so I'm all for missions, if that isn't clear enough. Look, the latest count of unreached people in the world without access to the gospel is over 3 billion people. Unreached people, 3 billion. That means every single day people are dying and they've never heard the gospel. However, if God calls you here to live here for the next 20 years, serving your family, the church, and the community, there's nothing wrong with that as well. Jesus cares for the stay-at-home mom here in the Bay Area the same way he cares for the village farmer in Bolivia. He cares for the teachers in our communities the same way he cares for the missionaries in Ukraine. All are equally important in the eyes of the Lord. And this is why I extremely admire and I looked up to the demands and the Costellos, dear families who serve the church faithfully here at Gateway, by setting up the church at 7.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning, by sharing their homes, by leading Bible studies. No one will ever write a book about them. But in our own eyes, they are radical families who live quietly, minded their own business, and worked with their hands. And friends, that is radical. Therefore, the call for us is to remain faithful here, right now, to love and witness where God has you now. And it's okay if God keeps you here. And it's also okay if God calls you somewhere else. But live quietly, mind your own business, and work with your hands. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we are again grateful for your word. Oftentimes, we are called to do radical things and, and to serve the poor and to serve the needy and to serve in missions and to serve other people groups. And Lord, that is very much needed. But Lord, you called us here as a small church in a sleepy town to serve. And so wherever you have us now, we pray that we serve faithfully. We pray that this word compels us, enables us to love our own people here within the church, to love our community, to share the gospel, because people need the gospel here as much as they need it overseas. And so we pray, Lord, just as a church, that we could meditate on this word to serve you faithfully. Lord, we thank, we're thankful for the gospel, which compels us to love. May, they, may that be on our hearts this morning. Lord, we love you, we praise you. All these things we ask in your name, amen.